Hello and hi, welcome to another Slice of Sci-Fi. I'm Summer Brooks and with me today, my special guest is author and uh, filmmaker Chris Alexander, who has a new book out this week called Corman Poe, interviews and essays exploring the making of Roger Corman's Edgar Allan Poe films from 1960 to 1964. And everyone knows I'm a classic sci-fi, classic horror fan. And the fact that there's a collection now that talks about the making of these films with the maker of these films just delights me to no end. So, Chris, welcome. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. It's an honor. And I'm uh, I'm glad that you have as much interest in this weird, wild, wonderful stuff as I do. <laughs> there's there's just such a a lost sense of elegance, I'm going to say, from the science fiction and horror movies of the 50s and 60s that you don't often see in modern filmmaking. So I I have an appreciation for what went into making those films and that, you know, the fact that most of them hold up to this day is a testament to, you know, maybe we should pay attention to how films are made again, you know, have, have a little bit of, I don't know. I'm not even sure what the right word is. (laughs) No, I I know what you mean. I mean, you know, my take on it is is always, well, you know, there's a couple ways that can address what you just said. One is, you know, the 50, the movies that were, you know, horror moves in waves. We had the, I don't have to go too deep back into the vaults when it comes to the cyclical nature of the genre. But you know, after the first wave of American monster movies, which were informed by the expressionist films and and then horror kind of went to bed and then woke up again in the 1950s and kind of woke up at the time when TV was rediscovering all these great monster movies from the 30s. So kids were discovering classic monsters. You know, back in the day, the movie would screen at a theater and, and that was your only chance to see it. It would run for however long it ran. And then it would vanish and maybe it would come back in a, in a revival. But other than that, there was no television. There was no outside media where you could watch movies. So kids discovered some of them for the first time, Frankenstein, Dracula, the Wolfman, all those great universal films and other films too, uh, via television in the fifties. And this was also the same time where movies like rebel without a cause were coming out. So teenage rebellion, youth culture, and uh, obviously the birth of rock and roll. So we have uh, Ed Sullivan showing Elvis uh, doing his thing on, on television and kids really kind of finding their voice for the first time in media. And, um, you know, so it was a very exciting time in American international pictures, which, um, which produced and distributed these, these Corman Poe films and all of Roger's initial films or most of them anyways, he was their house director uh, really was the first studio to really exploit and tap into that, that youth market. So the movies of that period were incredibly exciting and vibrant. Even when they were actively ridiculous, they were, they offered people the very first time where you would see teenage or young people as the protagonists, as the heroes and the central entry points into the story, because they were geared for that audience. Before that movies weren't really geared for a teenage audience. There was no real teenage culture before that. So when we look back at that, we're like, wow, some of these movies, yeah, they have that rock and roll energy, that feeling of invention, like you're heading back into that primordial ooze. And they're they're very exciting, um, especially if you can get past some of the antiquated uh, 
you know, silliness of some of them as well, right? You know, you have to kind of get past some of the goof goofball stuff there, but take it with a grain of salt. And the other thing is, um, you know, you mentioned paying attention to the way movies are made. Remember that all these first wave movies uh, during these pivotal points in history, you know, the classics of, of horror and science fiction and dark fantasy cinema were made by people, were made by great filmmakers first and foremost. They weren't made by people that necessarily grew up watching an exclusive diet of horror or science fiction. They were they grew up watching westerns and war films and action films and and surrealist films and and all sorts of films from all around the world. So a good horror movie, the classic horror films are first and foremost good films, you know. And I think today, this is not to be critical and be like an old man get off my lawn back in my day. But today, you know, by and large mainstream and we're talking mainstream American films, not global films. We have this great global village now where we can watch movies from all around the world, from all walks of life on a thousand different platforms. It's a, it's a golden age, really. But mainstream American films are very safe. And by and large, I feel like they're made by people that uh, grew up just watching horror movies, you know, so they kind of feel like yesterday's leftovers. There's no real spirit of invention. There's no spirit of danger which I think is so important in, in, the, in the pivotal iconic uh, films that, that last generations. I would love to argue that point with you because there, you know, my opinion is the people controlling the production and the money to make the films these days did not grow up as fans of television or film because they're so concerned with how much does it cost? How fast can we get it made? How fast can we get it out there? How fast can we get a return on our investment? They're not fans of entertainment. They're not fans of cinema. They're not fans of television. They just want to churn and churn and churn and make their bottom line to the detriment of the entertainment. And, you know, they're all MBAs. They're not film, film school graduates. So, yeah, well, I, I would say that's definitely part of it. But I don't think any of the, the money men throughout any cinema film history were necessarily um, big advocates of any kind of genre or they could separate what they liked versus what they thought was commercial. But mm -hmm. to your point, I think today that the big studios, uh, you know, the big machine, again, there's all these different sub machines like, you know, flip on Tubi any day of the week and you'll get lost. I think they're even their ad campaign is find a new rabbit hole. You'll oh, get yeah. Lost in a like a, a miasma of classic films that when I was a kid, you couldn't find anywhere. You had to hit the bootlegs in the black markets, but now they're readily available at the push of a button uh, from all around the world. Plus, you get new content, in, weird, independent stuff that you can't find anywhere else. So there's always interesting stuff out there for sure. But the big guys, I think to your point, it's not whether or not they know film or they don't know film. It's that they're terrified. They're terrified because, you know, the mainstream isn't king anymore. They're terrified because not many, you know, people will just as soon stay home and watch a movie than they will to go to the multiplex. They're terrified because now, well, I mean, since Star Wars, really, but even more perverse now, it's the big tentpole stuff that's actually making money because they can cross that over into merchandising. So the smaller voices, the edgier, weirder stuff is harder to find at the multiplex these days, uh, you know, because they are terrified that it ain't going to work. Now, by that same token, we get studios like A24 who are breaking through and doing genuinely, whether you like that stuff or not, genuinely thoughtful and uh, edgy stuff 
and it's still making its way onto screens and, and actually turning a profit. And to a lesser extent, you even get guys like Blumhouse, who, while I'm not necessarily across the board pleased with their product, they are kind of the heirs apparent to American international pictures in that they're producing pictures for lower budgets. They're reasonably budgeting their films for, uh, you know, so they can control them. So, you know, they spend uh, $2 million on a movie knowing that that film with a proper ad campaign will, will turn a profit of at least... 10, 20 million. So every film is profitable. And when every film is profitable, they can roll the, the dice a little more. So if there's not one right answer, I don't think for today's, mm -hmm. today's uh, wild world of, of cinema. Yeah, there's a uh, definitely a hidden treasure trove, I'll say of independent science fiction and independent horror films. Uh, a lot of the Korean horror films that showed up on Netflix, I was very surprised. And yeah, yeah. And that, then they all, I mean, we'll say that films like Parasite and, and breaking through to the mainstream and becoming the kind of uh, it movie of its period, uh, you know, and, and being released, you know, back in the day when a foreign film would hit uh, domestic shores, it would be absolutely dubbed. No, no chance of a subtitle if it was being spat into the mainstream circuit. But, uh, you know, to release a Korean film completely unscathed with, with subtitles in its original language. But, um, you know, with, with as far as, like, things showing up on Netflix, obviously Squid Game changed a lot. You know, the success mm -hmm. of Squid Game opening the gates for that demand. And because they didn't, they were, you know, by and large, these, these channels are not producing these films. They're licensing this product or they're buying this product or they're acquiring the rights to it for domestic distribution. The cost is, even though it's substantial, it's, it's by large negligible compared to some of the in-house in products they're doing. So there's much more freedom with streaming to, to kind of, you know, play fast and loose with the rules, which, which is interesting on one hand, but I do mourn the experience of rolling the dice when you go to the movies on a Friday night, and not not sure what the hell you're going to see mm -hmm. and wanting something weird and new. Um, and you just, you don't by and large see that anymore. It's the very, very safe bets at the cinema. Yeah. That, uh, that risk taking element and seeing uh, something different on yeah. that huge theater screen that I think that experience is, slowly disappearing but well i mean listen i'm i'm of a certain vintage and i came of age in the <laughs> 70s and 80s okay so but i was a little 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 boy in the 70s but that's when i came of age uh and but in the 80s is when you know the early part of the 80s when things were kind of going crazy but they were also at that same time locking down into formula uh if friday the 13th was successful we get fifty thousand clones of friday the 13th so it was kind of kind of whittling down but the 70s was the era of experimentation and it was also the heyday of the uh the dirty the dirty wave of the drive-in where you could see all kinds of crazy shit on the big screen uh, and you know and and uh you never knew what you were going to get you craved that kind of adventure and i guess uh streaming in many respects and i'll keep citing citing tubi because these guys are just going for broke it's fantastic uh is kind of the new drive-in it's like a digital drive-in you know, where that's its success is stemming from the fact that people do want to experiment. And obviously they want to experiment for very little money because everyone's broke and Tubi's free. So it's 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 interesting. Interesting times we live in. And uh, just for the horror fans, uh, most of them probably already know about Shudder. 
Uh, there's a, a new one out called Screambox that I'm just finding out about. Sure. Uh, and just l- waiting to see what happens with Screambox and how much traction those long forgotten films on Tubi get. Uh, I'm, I'm a little excited, hopeful. You know, the, the cynical mm-hmm. optimist in me wants to believe, you know. <laughs> uh, and- well, you know, here's the thing. Here's what I think. And this is you. We are, we are kin in this respect. And um, if you're a fan of this stuff and you say science fiction, horror, dark fantasy, whatever you call it, things that are offering us a portal into worlds that don't exist, but somehow still mirror our own, you know, um, we find a point of an, an anchor, an emotional anchor in some of these movies. But, um, you know, people that love this stuff, I think, and I speak from myself and, and everybody, everybody else I know who's as deep in the cups as I am in it, are seekers. We are, we are seekers. We are constantly searching. We are constantly looking. And whether that be trying to track down a film that we remember vaguely as a kid or trying to revisit a film that maybe the first time around we didn't care about so much, but we've read so much about it or heard so much about it. We need to revisit. Uh, And when we find things that we like, they become literally a part of our DNA, a part of our very identities. Um, So we, we, so, you know, I've never met in my travels more passionate and, you know, sometimes that passion can steer towards uh, an ugliness as well than in, in genre film fandom. There's a, there's a genuine almost tribal passion when you're really, really in love with this stuff. So, yeah, I don't know all these. Uh, you, you, your point is that I guess all these movies are so much content. You're not even sure if any of it's going to last the ages, I guess. But um, I guess the cream rises to the top, you know, and the stuff that's really hits people will always hit, hit you. And also it's so subjective. What I love is not what you love. My top 10 is radically different than your top 10. Uh, so, and, and, and I think in 50 years, everyone's top tens are going to be super different. I mean, back in the old days, everyone's horror top 10, you'd always find the exorcist in there or psycho, uh, or Texas chainsaw massacre. There was kind of a well that we drew from, but now the well is insane. It's a vast ocean. So I think, uh, everybody is going to have a radically different top 10, uh, genre film list. <laughs> yeah. And like my thing, my thing is story. I, I want a good story. And if it's made on a budget of 250000 or $250 million, I just want it to be a good story. Don't give me spectacle. Give me story plus spectacle if you have to. But the story has to be the foundation. And I think, uh, I think we're kind of on the same page there. Yeah, well, not, well yes and no. I mean, I, I like, um, listen, I love all cinema. And mm-hmm. I come to different, different um, entertainments with different expectations. Um, and story certainly uh, in linear films is important. Um, and I respond to that if that's the point of the exercise. But by the same token, my entry point into horror was, you know, as a little boy discovering this stuff and becoming really, really obsessed with it in an age where you couldn't find this stuff, as I, as I said, and there was no VCRs, there was no ability. We didn't have here in Toronto, Canada, where I am. We didn't have, uh, for, it took a long time for things like HBO to reach us. So you couldn't find a lot of this stuff. You'd read about it. You'd hear about it. You'd see posters and, and print ads in the newspapers about it. But to find them was different. And especially older, older films. Uh, so I had, I had a, a kind of, 
a weapons chest of things I used to find these films and to absorb that information. One was a, a critic named Leonard Malton. Every year he would release a paperback book, which was a series of capsule reviews, um, rating and reviewing every film, pretty much every film of note made to date. Of course, the, oh, the deeper cut international stuff didn't make the grade because even Malton hadn't seen that stuff. But most most of the main you know, drag horror films that had had some semblance of release were in there. And he'd have the cast list and the running times if the film was color, black and white, whatever. And um, and I would memorize. I would read this like a Bible. I would memorize every review. I can actually have a photographic memory uh, for film reviews from that book. I remember everything I read, every rate review. And, and one thing I learned very quickly was that if Malton gave a horror film four stars, it was going to be untouchable. It was going to be iconic. It was going to be magnificent. It was going to sit very high on top, on Mount Olympus. If he gave it three stars, eh, I don't know about that. I don't know. Three stars was a little bit crushingly average. If he gave the horror film a bomb, which was the lowest rating, then you were in for a treat. Because that meant that the movie was so transgressive and so unspeakable and so filthy that you just had to see it. He borderline dared you to see this film. So what I would do as a kid is I'd get the TV guide. This is true. The TV guide would come every Saturday in the newspaper. Uh, and I would take a, a pen and I would go through it. And at first I'd circle every horror movie that was playing that, that week. And then I would look specifically for the weird ass shit that had one star in the paper. And if it cross, uh, if I cross checked it with Malton and if it was a bomb, I would do everything and to ensure that I saw that film, no VCRs, no way to record them. So I would sleep with an alarm clock under my pillow because I didn't want to wake my mom and dad. I'd be in trouble. And the alarm would go off just in time for me to sneak downstairs. And I'd sit in front of that television, literally nose to the screen and turn the TV on with the volume down as low as it could go. So I could barely hear it. And these fucked up movies would start rolling out in front of me stuff like blackula and david cronenberg's shivers uh, aka uh, the version that they showed on, on tv was like they called they came from within which was the american title and uh william grayface stuff like death curse of tartu wild wild stuff and i wasn't experiencing it in any linear way i wasn't experiencing this stuff for its story i was experiencing it for its sheer baroque bizarre visual sensory impact it had on me and of course, every little creak and crack I could hear upstairs from mom or dad waking up or using the washroom, I'd turn it off and I'd be sitting there in the pitch black. And then as soon as it calmed down, I'd turn it back on and something horrible would be happening and I'd be terrified. And But it was such an uh, interactive, immersive experience to absorb weird movies that way that I kind of trained myself to look at horror movies like that. And I'm always looking for the movie that's going to make me feel like I was when I was seven or eight years old, sitting there at like three in the morning in front of that glowing tube TV and terrified out of my mind and seeing it in such a distorted way. So yes, story, absolutely. But also when it comes to the weird stuff, you know, visually give me something bizarre, visual, tell a story using dream poetry, dream state poetry, give me strange sound designs, Give me, give me weird moments. I mean, a lot of times, you know, if you're a big fan of this stuff, the movies you watch aren't that great, but you live in these crazy ass moments, right? Um, so I watch movies for all different reasons, depending what the movie is. Uh, it's a sliding 
sliding scale, I think. You sound like me with monster movies. I I am a sucker for a monster movie. I don't care how good it is, how bad it is. I will I will watch it because I want to know more about that monster. Yeah. I mean, my my first two films for you know, non-children's animated films that I saw on the big screen were Jaws and It Lives Again. Oh, and wow. I was so lost with It Lives Again. I had to go find It's Alive. It took yeah. me ages to find It's Alive at like, you know, 1130 at night on some like wacky, you know, uh, upper upper band channel. Yeah. UHF, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But uh, yeah, monster movies. I I will sit and watch a monster movie. I I, I, I just I just rewatched it. So uh, it lives again recently. When I was a kid, I um I'd see because you know if, I guess if you see them out of order, it lives again. Maybe the superior uh, movie, but I had seen it's alive already by the time I got to it lives again, and I found it too talky and and little. But then I got used to Larry Cohen's beat and his stuff's really eccentric and bizarre. And rewatching it lives again, I I think I may even like it better than than it's alive. Because it has, it's such an eccentric film. My God, oh yeah, oh yeah. It's, it's just, just the, Larry Cohen. God rest his soul, was one of the most eccentric architects of of the genre. Uh, you know, you'll never see it. No, the world will never see another another one like him. I don't think. And I, I, I urge anyone, any of your listeners who don't know who Larry Cohen is, to go do a deep dumpster dive into his stuff. You know, not not just the It's Alive trilogy. Yes, there's three of them, but. Uh, Stuff like God Told Me To or Cue the Winged Serpent or The Stuff or his uh, wild black exploitation movies like uh, Hell Up in Harlem and Black Caesar. I mean, uh, no one was like Cohen. No, nobody. Yeah, there was a, a documentary about his films that came out, Not, uh, I think, a few years back. Maybe You're right. Less, less than five yeah, years ago. Yeah, I think ago. it's called King Cohen. I never actually saw it. and I did, Thanks for putting it back on my radar. I'm actually writing it down as we speak. And uh, I'm going to look it up tonight because i'd always wanted to see it and i guess you know life doing what it does to you i, I just i lost the plot but king cohen yeah go check that one out folks everybody go check out king cohen but uh back to edgar Allan poe hmm. how did you come across uh corman's poe films i know there's a little anecdote in the book mm -hmm. where you talk about how your father loved the raven and how his enjoyment, excitement about the Raven got you wondering about the movie. Can you talk more about that? Yeah. So I was lucky enough when I was three years old, I discovered monsters. I think I'd seen them before. My uncle who was, who is, he's still with us is slow, but he was um, again, almost like a savant when it came to monster model kits and comic books and kept an immaculate room at my grandmother's house. That was like a museum. And uh, he exposed me to a lot. But I think the first monster I remember seeing, I was in the library sifting through the children's records when I was three or four. And someone had misfiled Kiss's uh, record, Love Gun. And uh, if you see, know that cover, it's a Ken Kelly painting. It's, there's Gene Simmons is depicted as a vampire with long fangs and bat wings. And, uh, and there's vampire ghost women at his feet swooning. And so it was just this wild awakening for me. And I was like, what am I looking at? I was terrified of it, but I was fascinated with it. And I never looked back. I just started going deep, deep, deep into trying to absorb as much as I could about, you know, com weird horror comic books and monsters and, and strange arts and movies. And 
and luckily enough, my parents uh, were both film fans and they were very liberal minded because they came from that era where they weren't trying to hide stuff from me. I was watching movies that probably weren't appropriate for me with them when I was a little boy. And also remember that a lot of the movies that were rated PG at the time would probably be R rated by today's standards. I mean, it was just a different time. Uh, so I was allowed to love this stuff. And so I really shared, shared that growing up, that, that awakening with my family. It wasn't something I did on the slide or rebel against them. It was part of the fabric of my life. Now my parents didn't get along so well. They ended up divorcing years later, but you know, that first 10 years was, you know, idyllic in a sense and, and horrible in another because they, they fought all the time. It was, there was constant fighting. One thing they didn't fight about was movies. We all kind of came together on the same page for movies. We'd have movie nights every week and they talked about movies with passion and they were always telling me about great movies that they saw. And I'll, I'll never forget, you know, it's true. I was just, it was really, really little. And my dad telling me about a time when I was a baby and I was, you know, raising a ruckus. And finally I went to sleep and he was tired, worked all day. And he just popped some Jiffy Pop popcorn, probably is what it was, because that's what he preferred at the time no microwaves and uh and sat on the couch turning the tv and lo and behold the raven was on and he watched it and he loved it and he was telling me all about uh this crazy movie that you know made him laugh made him made him cry you know, it had everything that he wanted a spectrum of emotions he you know had not just a, a horror film but it had everything and it was made by this guy roger corman and then my mom would counter that with stories about going to see the american international pictures corman pictures um, at the Kingsway Theater in Toronto when her and her friends daring themselves to walk home through the graveyard. Uh, so it was just like this really exciting, vibrant experience, experiences, anecdotal experiences of them, wa not just watching these movies, but how these pivotal points of their life were kind of affected by these movies, or they remember where they were when they saw these films. So hearing about these pictures and hearing about this guy, Roger Corman, really kind of lit a spark uh, where I had to see them. And again, it wasn't easy. I'd take books out from the library and I'd see uh, pictures about these movies. I'd see writings about these films, but you couldn't find them unless they were on, on television. So first, uh, to my recollection, the first time I really fully absorbed these movies was a few years later, uh, a, a channel, a show called the cat's pajamas out of Buffalo, New York. And we got that via the rabbit ears up here in Toronto. Um, we dialed it in. It would show old horror movies and Twilight Zone reruns. And, and I believe it was a Halloween, Halloween night. They were screening um, Roger Corman's Tales of Terror and The Mask of the Red Death. And I literally stayed up all night double shotting these movies with some cool little reruns of whatever TV shows were in between. And it, it was just a life changing experience. I found them vibrant, colorful, frightening, exciting uh, humorous, unusual. And, um, and again, it was kind of like after many years reading about these films, hearing about these films, talking about these films, finally getting them delivered to me in this way was so, uh, it was just, it was just an amazing magical night. And, uh, I never looked back. These films hold a special place in my heart and my soul. Everything about them represents everything I love about horror cinema, but 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 not just horror cinema, but cinema full stop. Yeah, so just so everyone knows about the the post cycle of films that we're talking about, we're talking about uh, The Fall of the House of Usher in 1960, uh, Pit and the Pendulum in 1961, 
Premature Burial and Tales of Terror in 1962, The Haunted Palace and the Raven in 1963, and Mask of the Red Death and the Tomb of Ligeia in 1964. And uh, also in your book was a anecdote about Mask of the Red Death that I never knew about, the, the censoring of it. So we'll talk about that later. But this collection of films is uh, iconic in the fact that it's considered uh, iconic, epic for Roger Corman's work. It's also some... Uh, Magnificent Performances by Vincent Price. Uh, these screenplays were adapted from uh, Edgar Allan Poe's stories. Some of them were adapted by Richard Matheson. We have another classic writer, Robert Town, in there. And these, these stories, these adaptations, and the way they were filmed, just, they, they sort of, for me, outline a, a time in independent filmmaking that doesn't come around very often. No, and, and, and everything about them just works. Um, and that's not nostalgia speaking. That's because they are, you know, just truly evolved motion pictures. And, you know, that's all due to Corman. I mean, it's all due to many people who were showing up to the party, but Corman being the, the orchestrator of all these pictures in the sense that, um, you know, I think I mentioned this in the book as well, or at least, pardon me, Roger does. But he, um, Roger, again, was the house director for American International Pictures. And they were the kind of the first guys on the scene to really successfully exploit the teenage market and, and create a, a succession of low-budget, high-concept uh, movies made for teenagers with monsters, with action, with fornication. Uh, you know, the acronym was, you know, was AIP, American International, was lorded over by two guys uh, James Nicholson and Sam Arkoff. And uh, Sam Arkoff had the, his last name was sort of the acronym for the formula of AIP. And that was A uh, for Arkoff. A stood for action. R was revolution. So any kind of pushing back against authority. K was for, had to be a modicum of killing. Uh, o was for oration. So great long speeches. Kids seem to love characters having these long eloquent speeches. Uh, F was for fighting, and then the, for, the last one was fornication, F for fornication. So they had to have all these exploitable elements in them to some degree. And Corman came on board as a young director and was able to successfully pump these things out one after the other. But Corman was also, and is also, he's still with us, 97 years old, still going strong, uh, a student of English literature, a great high-minded intellectual even then. So Corman was able to insert a level of uh, subtext and even commentary but he never did it to the sense that it overrode the narrative. It would always kind of sneak around in the back. If you looked for it, you could extract it. If you didn't, it wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't ruin or, or change your enjoyment of the picture. You know, first and foremost, these movies were meant to be fun. They were meant to be escapism. Uh, so that's why the Corman movies always had a bit of an edge. Now, by the time we get to the late 1950s, Roger had made so many of these movies, not just for AIP, but for his own uh, entity and for other studios, but mostly for AIP that he convinced uh, Arkoff and Nicholson to instead of in, investing in a couple black and white movies back to back to instead put that money into a single considerably more opulent uh, color picture that could speak not only to the teenage market, but maybe offer a little something more so they could crack the more a more mature market as well. And so the result of that was indeed um, follow the house of Usher. 
or House of Usher. But by the time he got to that, he had developed what they call the, he called the Corman crew. By moving from picture to picture, he was able to, via a three-column system, uh, the first column being the best of the best, the second being the sort of okay, uh, with a little bit of finesse, they could be the best of the best, and the third being the blacklist. He'll never, they'll never work for Corman again. And by the end of a few of these pictures, he was able to have the best crew in Hollywood, to the point where other studios would hire the Corman crew as a unit to work on their independent films. So um, by the time he got to House of Usher, he had the best crew, an independent crew in Hollywood. So a dime could easily stretch into a dollar. When you watch these films, they look expensive. They look grandiose. They look operatic. And back then they could compete at the big theaters with the big Hollywood movies because they looked like that. Plus he ingeniously would cast uh, known Hollywood actors who maybe were on the bit of a decline at the time, like Peter Lorre, Boris Karloff, Basil Rathbone, and of course, Vincent Price, but were still recognizable properties. They, they were known to an older demographic. So with House of Usher, he delivered this incredibly gorgeous film that functioned just as well as an exploitation horror film as it did as, as a work of literature, uh, high-minded literature. Uh, plus, he was able to, you know, employ uh, great craftsmen like um, his DP was a guy named Floyd Crosby, uh, the father of uh, recently departed rock star David Crosby, who was an Academy Award winning DP he, for a movie called Taboo, uh, but was old. I mean, an ageism has always been one of the great isms in Hollywood. And he was old and he wasn't getting the work. So for a very for very little money, Corman could employ Floyd Crosby, one of the best cinematographers in the business and give him his value by keeping him working through a series of pictures. He also had guys, again, as you say, like Richard Matheson, uh, writing these scripts that were inspired by Poe, uh, trying to distill the essence of Poe. Charles Beaumont, Ray Russell, Robert Town. He had um, composers like Les Baxter, who was a very popular pop music, lounge music composer, um, Ronnie Stein, and, and uh, amazing revolutionary production design by a guy named Daniel Haller. I mean, he had the best of the best working for him. And he was able to corral these guys together like a, like a, like a tribal team from film to film to make these movies. So although they are a little bit diverse, they all share the same DNA. They all share the same sensibility. They're all more or less based on the works of Edgar Allan Poe, except for The Haunted Palace, but we can get into that in a bit. Uh, but at the end of the day, they are all, they all exist and they all endure, I think, because of, of the sensibility of one guy. And that's, that's Roger. Yeah. The set design on almost all of these is still uh, eye catching to this day. And the, the fact that he was able to keep these folks together for so long to keep, you know, making these movies is, is a is a feat and well, yeah and he wasn't you know roger is not and wasn't he's not a tyrant he understood cinema he knew what he wanted he would meticulously pre-plan these things he would stay on schedule he would uh always uh, bring these movies just under under budget just a little bit enough to please his masters but the the environment working on a corman movie was that of of friendship was that of getting together, getting the job done. These were professionals to their core. None of them had necessarily egos or dreams of being big stars. A lot of them were big stars at one point. And then now just, you know, with Vincent Price, for example, he was, you know, character actor dating back to the 
1930s, 40s. You know, he was an Otto Preminger's Laura. Uh, didn't really become a horror star until the 1950s with the House of Wax. And But it was Corman who really put him on the map as a quote-unquote horror star. But by this point, uh, Vincent just wanted to stay employed so that he could fund his real passions, and that was collecting art and uh, and cooking, you know? So with Corman, he was able to have these respectable big canvases to kind of go crazy and create these wild performances and just have fun. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's why these guys kind of stuck together. Everyone just liked to work with Roger. Plus, in The Independence, Roger was doing things that, you know, that a lot of the other guys weren't. Now, in the book, you have each each movie has its own chapter and you have these long, in-depth interviews with with Roger for each of them. How long did it take to go through all of these films with him and uh, dig up some of these, uh, I guess, historical, the, the photographs, the, the documents? I, um, I can't remember the first time I interviewed Roger. I think I was writing for the Toronto Star and uh, they put me on assignment to grill him about something that was being released. And the opportunity came up. And of course, I jumped at it. So I, at that point, I had already interviewed Richard Matheson for, for Rue Morgue. And I talked to a lot of these guys. Not Price. I missed, unfortunately, that window. He passed when I was still a teenager. But, um, so the opportunity came up. And uh, I meticulously, I record every interview I do, obviously. And I keep those interviews. So one interview led to more, led to more, led to more, led to a friendship, led to him knowing who I was, led to me befriending his wife, the great producer in her own right, Julie Corman. And so for the past 20 years, I would cite Roger and Julie as, as friends. And I helped them out with projects. They would uh, help me out when I needed something. Um, but at the end of the day, I had this vast collection of interviews, some that were published, most of them which were not. I would extract, you know, maybe every time we'd talk about something, I'd always sneak in a few questions about the Poe films just for my own curiosity. Uh, I think one published interview with Roger about the Poe uh, films I'd, I'd done, and that was when I was running Fangoria. I did um, a Corman on the Poe cycle story. So we talked a little bit about those, but it was a very, you know, it's Fangoria. So I think we had like a three, four page interview and then we moved on with the rest of the issue. Uh, but I had this great wealth of material sitting there now, here I was during the pandemic, as all of us were locked down and not knowing what tomorrow will bring. And Roger himself, obviously, being locked down, and even probably more than I was, because at that point, he was well into his 90s. And, uh, you know, not a lot going on in the world. And I thought, well, Roger's still here. He's still alive. I need to do something with this material. I need to put my passions for these films and collect them together with these amazing conversations that we've had about the, the the making of these incredible movies and put them into some sort of comprehensive, you know, love letter to them. Uh, so I called Roger up and I told him what I was going to do. And that was nothing new to him. People have been writing and speaking about the Poe films since, since their inception in 1960. Uh, but I told him that this would be a personal work. And so he agreed to, to participate. And during the pandemic, we just set up a succession of interviews to putty in the cracks from the ones I'd already done. And I was left with um, a pretty expansive first-person account of the making of these eight pictures that I cut up into um, eight separate interviews uh, for this for this book. So it represents Carmen Poe represents again not just a um, a great entry point for people trying to discover these films or go a little deeper into their making, 
uh, but it also represents, you know, a 20 year connection and friendship to a man I consider to be the founding father of um, independent cinema. I am envious that you got to interview Richard Matheson. That's all I'm going to say. I, I, you know, there was, I think he had released a book called Hunted Past Reason, which is an excellent Latter-day book uh, that Richard wrote. And I did this cover story for Rue Morgue. Uh, it was one of the first big things I'd done. And I was, it was one of the greatest and most nerve wracking experiences of my life. Cause I was a Matheson fan, not just from the Corman films, but I am legend is my favorite book of all time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm a twilight zone. I don't have many tattoos, but I do have a twilight zone tattoo because outside of, you know, the Roger stuff, the Rod Serling is my, is my all other hero. And, uh, and Richard outside of Rod wrote uh, some of the best episodes of the zone. So it was a huge deal to talk to him. And that was another thing where I spent a lot of time talking to him and developed a sort of friendship to the point where I had his home office number and I'd call him up when I needed a, a quick answer about something that I was doing for something else. And and uh, then when I took over Fangoria, I made sure to put Richard back on the cover for something else he was doing. And so I, I developed, you know, we didn't go bowling on Friday nights. So it's it's hard for me to say that he was a close friend but I certainly had a connection with him and he was reachable to me when I needed him, which was a, a gift, a true gift. Wow. That's, that's all I'm going to say is just, wow. And the, this book is also a, wow, the, the, the wealth of photographs of stills from the film, the, the collection of international posters for the yeah. movies is, yeah. you know, that, that you know, that's a little geeky joy for me because you know movie posters used to be uh, iconic. A lot of them still are. You know, Drew Struzan is still you know posting concept art for movies that never happened on his Twitter feed. I love that. <laughs> God bless him. My God, what a genius! But no, I mean back in this period too. You know, all these these posters, no one knew what a computer was, right? So these were all. These were all hand drawn, hand painted. There was such a feeling of such a warmth and a sensationalism. And, and again, true craft. Even the lowliest of exploitation film would end up with a poster that was an exemplified craft. Uh, but what's cool about some of the posters and going through, you know, it was important for me to, as you say, show international, a wealth of international posters, because I really wanted to exemplify, you know, the reach that these movies had. They didn't just play at, you know, the big cities, LA, New York, wherever, they played everywhere, everywhere across the globe. They were influential from shore to shore. And what's cool about the European posters and, and overseas posters is that, you know, every culture is different and every marketing approach to selling films is different. So you get radically different, sometimes incredibly sensational and sometimes completely erroneous ways of selling uh movies like I, I, you know this they're not in the corman book but if you've seen any posters movie posters from like um from ghana or something you know that they're they're insane like they don't even make any sense i think the mrs doubtfire poster has her with like an ak-47 and so i mean some of these posters were just incredibly lush and wild and weird and outlandish and so it was important that i put as many as i have in my possession and as many as i could find in, in this book that would allow so in, in putting together this book, what was uh, something that was a surprise to you or uh, something that you had totally forgotten about and were just happy to, to rediscover? 
Well, you know, getting into the guts of the Mask of the Red Death and uh, and seeing, you know, it's been well documented that the film ran and was under fire from the Catholic Legion of Decency. But the documents here were um, that are printed, reproduced in the book, were, um, were given to me by a guy named John Davison, who was, uh, worked with Roger throughout the 1970s at New World Pictures and, and produced uh, Joe Dante's Piranha and several other films and uh, was his, basically his marketing guy. So we'd come up with all the great taglines for the posters and ad campaigns. But the later one on would go on to produce Robocop and Airplane and all kinds of stuff. Great guy. And it's still very tight with the Corman crew. And he, like me, I collect um, the 16 millimeter films. So does John. But John is um, much more established in that world and collects and restores uh, films. And he had been working for a long time to restore the uncut mask of the Red Death. And in doing so, he, he ended up getting his hands on a bunch of documents that, you know, AIP was notorious with not letting those documents out of the vault. So he somehow got them and he allowed me to reproduce, um, you know, some of these documents. So if you read them and read them, you know, chronologically as I've, as I printed them, it's just a neat little, you know, head, shake your head back and forth between American International and the Legion of Decency itemizing all the things that they find odious and objectionable about Mask of the Red Death. And AIP trying to fight this, but also relenting to this by the same accord. And then at the end, having to make questionable cuts to a movie that did not need any cutting at all to appease um, appease uh, the Catholic Legion of Decency, which blows my mind that even in 1964, as we're on the cusp of you know, the uh, counterculture rebelling against all um, prior systems and standards that they were still kind of slave and concerned about a backlash uh, from, from the Catholics. I mean, I found that really, 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 really fascinating and interesting and infuriating. I don't know about infuriating. I would have expected it, but it's, uh, it's still pretty wild to, to think. Because when you watch Mask of the Red Death, in no way, shape or form is it pro-satanic at all. In fact, it's even questionable, and Roger even says this in the book, if uh, Vincent Price's Prince Prospero is even, even though he claims to be a disciple of the devil and Satan, he does, he's not really, he's just a decadent nobleman who is rebelling against all systems. And he's a narcissist and he's kind of using the idea of Satanism uh, to kind of um, empower himself. Uh, so, you know, and, and it's certainly not painted in any sort of positive light. So why the, the, the Legion of Decency would want to dampen that when it shows Satanism to be truly unpleasant and the people that follow it to be truly unpleasant. I, I don't know. It was, it was a foolish thing. Do you have any uh, knowledge or insight on how hard it was to actually restore that movie? Um, not, not particularly. I mean, yes. I mean, John and I off the top of my head have had these conversations and I ran a great um, interview with him in uh, a prior issue of Delirium Magazine a few years ago, the magazine I started um, with um, my, my business partner, Charles Band, uh, after I left Fangoria. But um, I don't remember the ins and outs of what he did outside of what normal people do, just collecting material, searching vaults, and then having to meticulously match that footage with what had already existed in its best forms to create an, and then getting a new 4k scan of all that collected material in a kind of seamless, flawless way. I believe the restored mask of the red death is currently available. Um, 
most readily available in two ways on Blu-ray. I think um, Shout Factory put out another uh, volume of the Vincent Price collection. I think it's, I guess it's volume two of three and mask is in there and that's the restored as well as um, a British company. I don't know if it was BFI. I'm not sure recently put it out as well. Um, so it's, it's, it's pretty widely available now, this, this beautifully restored version that John worked on. Uh, and again, when you compare the two versions, it's just ridiculous what was originally removed. It, it makes no sense. <laughs> Physical media people go get what you like on disc because you don't know if it's going to still be around on streaming in a couple of years. Trust me on that. <laughs> yeah. Like, and then you're a slave to somebody's licenses. You know, I, I, um, one of my other gigs is I, again, because of my connection to Charlie, Charlie Bannon, I work for, uh, with full moon, full moon features. And, oh, nice. And that's what I do. Big part of my, I've made, you know, I direct films and I've directed four movies for full moon. And, um, and I run, you know, partially run their, their channel. We have a streaming channel, full moon features. And then by proxy, we have our own Amazon prime channel and a Tubi channel. And we don't just run full moon movies. I license, crazy European exploitation films and wild stuff from all around the world. And, you know, you get licenses with defined terms on them. And once those licenses expire, then those movies have to be legally removed from, from these platforms and they go back into their vaults until someone else comes in and makes the deal to pull them out. So if they yeah, you never know when a movie you dig is suddenly going to vanish. Uh, it may show up. It probably will show up somewhere else, some other place, but you don't have any control of when you're going to watch it. So the, you lazy bastards who are sitting around just kind of lazily scrolling and, and just don't, you know, don't take it for granted and uh, make sure you get out there and buy all those, the movies that you really, really love and need to possess, keep them, hold them and save them because we don't know. We don't know when any of this stuff is going to go south. Exactly. Exactly. So Chris, this has yeah. been a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful discussion about classic horror and this awesome book where is, are the best places people can find you online to keep track of your next uh i'm gonna say epic project uh well i mean um best places probably uh my my website which is chrisalexanderonline.com pretty simple i update it more or less regularly um there you can find um links to explore my films and my music you know, it creates and produce and perform music and uh, not just for my films, for other people's films and just sometimes for the sheer pleasure of creating uh, as well as connections to my various uh, incarnations uh, where I scribble my written words as well. So it's pretty much the hub, the nucleus of all the, the nonsense that I, I waste my time on. <laughs> well, we'll have links to that and links to where people can purchase this lovely, lovely volume, Corman Poe. Chris, again, thank you. Thank you so much for your, your insight and your time today. Thank you so much, Summer. I, I really appreciate um, your time and taking a little piece of it to um, shine a light on, on the book and, and what I do. So thank you so much. And we'll be back with more Slice of Sci-Fi right after this. Pseudopod, the free horror fiction podcast brought to you by Escape Artists. It makes my bones chatter against each other and you sit up in bed. 
I scream as I remain a statue, and then the fury in me becomes a raging, hot thing in my chest. Each week, one story told well. There, writhing in lurid agony upon the floor, was a short creature, perhaps two feet tall. It was covered with red, wire-like hair on every inch of its exposed flesh. From the most chilling and unsettling storytellers of the genre. The wind's up now, and the sackcloth is blowing in black tatters round it, making it writhe like the worms. Only that ain't all sackcloth. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, or find us on the web at pseudopod.org, and on Patreon under EA Podcasts. Hey folks, this is Bruce Campbell, and this is my podcast. Thank you very much. And once again, the book is called Corman Poe. Interviews and essays exploring the making of Roger Corman's Edgar Allan Poe films from 1960 to 1964. You can order it today at your favorite retailers, uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Bookshop, all of them. You should be able to purchase... uh, I believe it is only print and ebook, but these pictures are so lush and gorgeous. You owe it to yourself to see these these images, these photos, these uh, documents, the the historical documents from the uh, censorship battle over Mask of the Red Death are fascinating. the The entire book, if you are a classic horror film fan, a history buff, this book is something you'd want in your library. How about you? What sort of uh, classic horror films would you like in your collection? Physical media, physical media, physical media, yeah. Get your, get your favorite movies on disc because you never know when they're going to disappear from like Paramount Plus or, or uh, Max, HBO Max. They just vanish. They go away. It's annoying. But let me know. Call in 602-635-6976. Leave a voicemail message. Let me know what sort of classic films still inspire and entertain you these days. Or shoot me an email, summer at sliceofsci-fi.com or come on by the website, sliceofsci-fi.com and leave a comment in the discussion section there. And you can also hit me up on Twitter at sliceofsci-fi. You can listen to Slice of Sci-Fi on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Player FM, and iHeartRadio. And if you're listening on Apple or Stitcher or Podchaser, please consider leaving us a review or a rating. Let folks know you are enjoying the podcast and maybe they should check it out for themselves. In addition to Twitter... We have uh, some videos for you over on YouTube, youtube.com slash at slice of sci-fi, all one word. The uh, newest additions to our YouTube channel, in addition to uh, 
reviews, movie reviews by uh, Lewis and Noah. We've got uh, some new Babylon 5 content, Babylon podcast content. Uh, Tim and I did a deep dive examination of the new trailer for the new Babylon 5 animated film coming out in August. We did a little uh, video of the, I guess, the reaction shot, the reaction for the video, and then we did a deep dive for the podcast, so go check that out over there, babylonpodcast.com. I'd like to thank everyone who is currently helping to support all of our efforts here at Slice of Sci-Fi, over at Babylon Podcast, and over at Writers After Dark. Your pledges through Patreon, your donations through PayPal, really do help keep things rolling around here. So uh, thank you all for supporting our efforts here. If you'd like to add your support, the place to go is patreon.com slash slice of sci-fi. Pick a tier, any tier, and your name will be included in the uh, the giveaways, the perks, the Patreon perks. Every month I pick a winner from the hat, and that person gets to choose from uh, books, DVDs, Blu-rays, 4Ks, the stuff I get to review here. I simply don't have the space to keep all of it, so... The fans and listeners to our shows get first dibs on some really cool stuff. And that's my way of showing my appreciation for your support over the years. And if you're just interested in donating every now and then, the link to use is paypal.me slash sci-fi summer. But that'll do it for this episode. I'd like to thank you all for listening. And we'll be back with more Slice of Sci-Fi next time. Take care. Mm-hmm.